Well, you can take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 1 to begin this morning. Christmas 1941, not what everyone had in mind for Christmas that year. Christmas 1941, war had been raging in Europe, and as we know, and as we celebrated, I guess celebration may be the wrong word, we remembered the anniversary of this past week, December 7th, 1941, was the day the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, bringing the United States into World War II. And have you ever thought of it in that context that that was Christmas time? It's time to get ready for Christmas. And instead, you've been hearing war's been going on. You keep hearing about this guy Hitler and the Nazis, and you hear what's going on, and then wake up or hear later that day, I suppose, because it was morning in Hawaii, but hear of the course of that day or the next day that this place has been bombed. Now, we're going to war and all these things unfolding. And now, as you're into the Christmas season of that year, there's this huge cloud of gloom of war raging across the world. At a time when families still tried to get together to redeem the Christmas season in some way, to not let that crowd out everything, there were still salvage crews recovering bodies in Pearl Harbor. At the White House, instead of the Roosevelt family coming together, Winston Churchill was there with a whole big group of people from Britain filling up the bedrooms, so there was no family get-together for them that year. Many families were worried and were wondering if their husbands and sons would be going to serve. And yet, despite all the adversity and the gloom and the cloud that shadowed everything, many still sought to retain their Christmas season as much as they could and get together. And you can read accounts of those that went through that time and how they did Christmas that year. But again, all in a time when we generally think of the idea that one day, because of Christ, there will be peace on earth that year, there was no peace like anywhere on the whole planet. I mean, that's just, um, you, you marvel at that, at the times that people have gone through over the years, and the heartaches, the times of fear and doubt that can cloud even the most special times. Well, this morning, we're going to look back to the first Christmas and as we do that, we know, like I, I'm talking about Pearl Harbor in the, the, the year that we were pulled into World War II and all that was going on that, that December. And what came of that, though, it was all this hardship and adversity, but what came of that was that through the United States being brought into the war, what happened? We helped win the war, brought peace back to the world. And I'm, I, for one, see the providence of God in all that that something that was terrible was used to bring more people into the war to eventually win the war and stop Adolf Hitler and stop the Japanese from world dominion and stop those things. 
And so we see in that a little picture of God's providence uh, and the fact that it's often through adversity and difficulty that we move into a greater state of blessing or a greater peace in our own heart. It may not be everything around us is great, but it grows us, and it usually takes us to what God has in mind later. And that's what I think I see when I think back at something like Christmas 1941, and I think it's also what we see when we go back to the first Christmas, the original nativity, which again we see in Matthew and Luke, the the two gospel writers that kind of give us the story, give us the picture of what's going on there. And this morning, uh, I want to just kind of do it a little bit different. I, I probably going to read a lot of the passage and then kind of stop and make comments and make some points throughout because I just want to really, you know, in a sense, let the Scripture speak and, and take us through the steps of Joseph. Um, but a lot of times at Christmas, you know, uh, we, we, Joseph gets left out sometimes, I think. You know, he's kind of like the quiet guy over here. You know, Mary's got the baby, shepherds around or whatever, and Joseph's just kind of the strong, quiet type in the background, you know, and that's about all he gets in, in the nativity story, you know. But the Bible tells us there's a lot more going on with him, going on in his heart and mind through the process. And he had to step up and be a provider and a protector in a really special way for his family because of the circumstances they found themselves in and how God chose to bring Christ into the world. And so we're going to look at Joseph this morning, and we're going to look to begin in Matthew chapter 1, and beginning with verse 18. And what I want to see here in chapter 1 is just the idea, and it's on the outline as, seeing heartbreak through hope. Seeing heartbreak through hope. Um, Because you see in this passage, Joseph was going through heartbreak and heartache over what was happening in his life, and the Lord came and intervened in a way so he could then view it in a whole new lens, through the lens of hope, and the lens of knowing God is at work, even in my trials and difficulties, the things I don't understand, the things that don't make sense, God is at work. And so he, through this passage, you see him basically moving from heartbreak to hope and seeing things from God's perspective. Let's look and let's read a few verses here in Matthew chapter 1, beginning with verse 18 through 21. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit." And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Clearly in this passage is where we see Joseph learn what is happening in his world. And I marvel every Christmas coming to these passages, and I marvel at at really God's choice 
to not tell Joseph right up front what was happening. Like, I didn't get the memo, God, of what we're doing here. And we, when we're introduced to him in this situation, it doesn't say explicitly, but it almost sounds like, you know, like he's having trouble sleeping and, 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 and he's wrestling with things. He's certainly wrestling with this. And he's, he's, he's in a state, apparently, of inner turmoil because he's betrothed to this young girl. And betrothal is, is, is similar to how we think of engagement for the Jewish first century culture. It was, a much, it was more of a commitment. Uh, it, wasn't, it was probably more serious than our engagements. Like, they were basically viewed, in one sense, as like, it's a sure thing they're going to be married, and, and you'd have to even have a writ of divorce to even get out of betrothal. It was a very big deal in the culture. And then later they would have the, the actual wedding ceremony and so forth and, and come together and live together as man and wife. But already in this betrothal, they're viewed as like they belong to each other, and this has been set, and this is what's going on. And so he's betrothed to Mary, and we read earlier from Luke chapter 1, we know what happened with Mary. And we're not going to turn there and read it again. That's why I wanted to read it in the scripture reading. But we get her, we see what happened to her when Gabriel came and told her, this is what's going to happen and this is what's happening with you. And, well, I guess it's interesting to think, I, I don't know that Mary went and told Joseph right away. Mary goes off and stays with Elizabeth for a while. And, you know, we don't know how Joseph learned about this. Did he see her one day and she's beginning to show that she's with child, and, and again, just to imagine, put ourselves in that, those shoes for a moment to think, here's a man betrothed, and, and, and he's got his whole life before him. He is making plans. He is a carpenter. He is probably not very wealthy, probably fairly impoverished, not real good money, but can make a, a living, you know, and provide, but that's about it. And he's got the girl, and, he, and he's probably thinking ahead to like, we're going to get married, and we're going to have a family, and we're going to grow the carpentry business, and we're going to, you know, and we're going to do it before the Lord, and we're, you know. And then, however he learned about this, his world is rattled. This, everything's gone. Throw it all out. Everything I was planning. And you could imagine the sense of betrayal he would have felt. Okay, my, my wife-to-be is pregnant, and I know it's not mine, right? And I love that the Scripture captures this turmoil that he went through for us. And we see he's, oh, he has a plan. He, his plan has changed. He's, it's not going to be with Mary. Now he's thinking, I'm going to put her away. We're going to go through this divorce procedure to break off the betrothal and it says that he does it he was thinking of doing it secretly or privately in verse 19 he he didn't want to make her a public example and do you know why that is because at that time if you were a young and married woman um, and you were proved to be unfaithful the penalty could be death the penalty could be death there's a verse we'll pull up on the screen here. It's Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 20 and 21. Oh, I'm sorry, Christopher, I didn't give point A, but thank you, skipped ahead. Good job. <laughs> I went out of order there. But in Deuteronomy chapter 22, 20 through 21, part of the law of Moses says this, But if the thing is true and evidences of her of virginity are not found for the young woman, 
Then they shall bring out the young woman to the door of her father's house, and the men of her city shall stone her to death with stones, because she has done a disgraceful thing in Israel, to play the harlot in her father's house. So you shall put away the evil from among you. That's no joke, is it? This is serious stuff. God looked at the marriage relationship and that covenant and the desire to have godly offspring extremely near and dear to his heart, extremely serious business. And he, he defines it as sacred before him. And there, therefore, these, these such laws. That to be unfaithful in this situation was, could, could merit the death penalty, and it would have done that. Now, the point here on the outline is that what we see with Joseph is that fear and doubt were exchanged for the promise of God. Fear and doubt were exchanged for the promise of God. Joseph is wrestling with fear and doubt. And you say, how do you know he was wrestling with fear? Well, it tells us in verse 20. In verse 20, Joseph is asleep. He's having a dream. And again, you wonder if this is like some kind of a fitful night and he has this dream. But he has a dream, and in the dream, this is how God chooses to intervene in his life, through dreams. You're going to read Joseph has four dreams through this sequence, and, an, and it's always like an angel talking to him in the dream. You know, Mary, the angel came into the house, but Joseph, we're doing dreams. I don't know why, it's just the way it is, but that's what's happening. You'll see four of these kind of encounters through his part in the birth of Christ and so forth. And the angel tells him, again, if it's in verse 20, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife. Do not be afraid to take her as wife. It's funny because we were talking in Sunday school even. In the Bible, usually when an angel shows up, the angel has to say, don't be afraid of me. Like, don't be afraid. I'm here to tell you something. But, but Joseph's having a dream. The angel's in his dream. But he doesn't say, don't be afraid of me. He says, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. And that tells us that Joseph's emotions included fear. That he was wondering, like, how do we do with it? He may have been afraid for her sake. Like, I don't want to see her stoned or, or forever shamed or despised or ridiculed because he was a good guy. He's a just man, as it says in the text. He didn't want a, a bad fate for her, but yet he felt betrayed. He, he didn't feel, we can't go forward with this. This isn't my child. You've made a choice apart from me, Mary. That's how he would have been viewing it. And so he would have been afraid maybe of what happened to her. He may have been afraid of what it would do to his life and his business and his reputation and just all that it would bring on them in the world in which they lived in that context where, where this would have been very much despised. And a, big, and a very big deal. So Joseph, he's, he's there He's afraid, and into this moment, into his fear, this angel speaks to him in the dream. No, you can do this. This is of the Holy Spirit. I'm guessing that, I mean, I would assume he had some conversation with Mary before the dream of when he found out you're with child, and she's like, yeah, but, but it's, it's the Holy Ghost. And you'd be like, yeah, right, it's the Holy Ghost. Yeah, sure. I mean, nobody would believe that. And really, it would be, you, would, you would need it to be proved because like, it's never happened before ever in all of human history. So you need a little bit of intervention for people to believe this. Um, and so, you know, again, he, it's confirmed to him, no, it, it, she is conceived of the Holy Spirit. This is God's plan. This is God's work. And not only that, not only is it like okayed, 
by the Lord that this is, this is what, you know, you go, go forward with your plans. God's, God's with you in this. It's not only that, but, but put out on the table is even more hope for them because what it's showing too is you've been selected for something very special, one-of-a-kind opportunity. No one else in all of history will ever be able to get to do what you're about to do. There is put before him the opportunity to be the father of the Messiah, the, the coming one, the Christ, the incarnate son of God. Only one man in all of history is that person, and that's Joseph, to be the earthly father to our heavenly Lord. And so not only is he going to be comforted through God's truth in this moment, and he can move beyond his fear and doubt, but it's replaced with even greater hope, a greater assurance that God is doing something special in their life that is unique for them. And I think, well, you know, you and I are never going to be in Joseph and Mary's shoes completely. We're, that's just not going to happen. It's, it's, it's a one-of-a-kind event, right? We understand that. And a lot of us aren't going to, you know, we're not, going to, we're not expecting angelic dreams or angelic visitors. We're not expecting that. But yet, when we go through hard times and difficult circumstances, we do have promises. We, too, have hope that carries us through difficult times. And for us, it's the things God has said to us already, that he loves us, that he accepts us, that he is our heavenly father, and that he is with us always. And he's going to work all things to good as he conforms us to the image of Christ. That, when that comes home to heart, that ought to knock your socks off. That, they're, they're, that promise. You know, really, what I just said, in a lot of ways, is, 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 it's very special, too, that you can be a son of God through Jesus Christ and have all that blessing. It is a very special thing. So we, too, as we trust our Father in His will and His plans for our life, we, too, can hand over our fear and doubts to be replaced with the hope and the promises that He sets before us, just like in Joseph's life. Let's read on in the passage with verse 22, Matthew 1. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to him his wife, and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. So again, we see more layers of God's promise and hope in this situation. And it's interesting because in verse 22, Matthew, the writer, tells us this was what was spoken of. And you see this with Matthew, which is a little bit different from Luke's account. Like, Matthew always wants to point out, hey, this was a prophecy, by the way. Oh, yeah, that was a prophecy, by the way. And just sort of a little bonus thought is so many of the prophecies he mentions, most people in, in, in the Old Testament, their study, they would have never have thought what Matthew sees. They would have never guessed these were verses about Christ in the context. They were thinking it was something else or something more immediate. Uh, even, even the one that's quoted in verse 23, there's a lot of uh, thought surrounding it of what all it could mean. But we certainly see with verse 23... 
he points out the verse. It comes from Isaiah 7.14. And just to show, we'll pull that up here. But Isaiah 7.14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. So it's verbatim here Matthew brings up. This is what God was doing. It was, and it, what it's meant to tell us, the thing about prophecy is like, God was doing this all along. He's been here the whole time. He didn't just show up. He's been ready for this all this time and moving this way and directing steps and working providentially in the lives of his people. And I believe he does that today in your life, that he's been there the whole time when you're faced with something hard. He's been there. He's ready for it. He's been directing your steps, and he's going to take you through it. Our point on the outline is challenging circumstances became a situation of great potential. Challenging circumstances became a situation of great potential. Similar to what I said a moment ago, Joseph is realizing not only is this okay and God's doing this, but there is this huge potential because of who this child is, and now I'm entering into a role that is a -a one-of-a-kind role in all of human history to, to father as an adopted father, this, this special child along with Mary. And there's this huge potential now because this, this is just no ordinary child. This is the Savior of the world, the one who will save his people from, her, from their sins, the one whom the Lord had spoken of through the prophets. And so in verse 24 again, when he wakes up from this dream, he did what the angel told him to. He took Mary. He... And, and there's a response of faith there with Joseph, an obedient step of faith. And, it, and it's kind of like a, through this dream, it's, it's an affirmation for Joseph that I am making the right choice here. This is God's will for me. And a, and a lot of us, I'm sure we have areas in our life where we would love just once in a while to have a dream or something to like where the Lord says, yeah, you're, you're, you're doing it just the way I want you to do it. This is what I want you to do. We would really probably appreciate that. Because deep down, we do want to know what's happening. We want to be able to expect what's really going to happen and, and know and have understanding. We, in a sense, I think we would want to walk by knowing rather than walk by faith or as, as the Bible tells us, we are to walk by faith and not by sight. But I think a lot of times it's if we're, we've verbalized it differently. We want to walk by knowing. I want to know what's next. I want to know what's going to happen. I want to know how this is going to turn out. I want to know how long I'm going to be in this circumstance. I want to know if it's going to be a few days, a few weeks, a few months, a few years. I would like to know, thank you very much, <laughs> what I'm in for. What am I signing up for? But that's not how God works. He gives us what we need to know, the truth that sets us free, and then he calls us to walk in faith to that truth. That's what he does. And so we see a very similar thing with Joseph. All he knows now is, I can say yes to this and go forward with my plans. I will marry her. I will raise this child. But he doesn't know what's next. And he... And if I'm Joseph, at this point, I'm thinking, okay, well, maybe that's the worst of it. Okay, I, this confusion, fear, doubt, God's working. All right, all right, God, I'm in. But it's not the end of the story, is it? And we see 
I guess we'll say complications, arise. But what we see with Joseph again in this, in his life, and what was going to, you know, shipwreck his life as it will, we see again God used it. It, put, it, was, it had potential. It was, no, God's working here. God has a greater plan. God has something in mind, a special blessing. So you take the step of faith toward that, and there's more potential. And again, I think that's how God works in our life. We see the adversity, but in the adversity there is potential for God to grow us, to build our faith, to work in our hearts and our lives so that we can have even perhaps greater impact on those around us. We're going to move on into chapter 2 here. Chapter 2, and I'm going to read the first six verses here. Here we're looking to see problems through providence in this chapter. And in verse 1 it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Okay, well, we know at this point, between Matthew 1 and Matthew 2 is where you insert some of Luke chapter 2. The census, the one we, you know, we generally focus on more in Luke chapter 2. The census, they go to Bethlehem. Mary delivers Jesus in Bethlehem, lays him in the manger. All those things happen. The shepherds come that very night, see the babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. But when we pick up in, in Luke chapter 2, we start to put things together and we recognize these wise men, they didn't come the night Jesus was born. They came later. Apparently, we can't be super dogmatic on all of it because we're just trying to piece together. As we're going to see, they saw, they saw, his, they saw a star. And they, were, they, were, they knew that meant something special. They knew it had something to do with the king of the Jews, that there would be a ruler born and they were going to go find this king of the Jews. And so they went, and they began to travel. Now, the star appeared the night he was born. That means they couldn't have even left until the night he was born from the east. And it takes a long time to travel. The east is probably the area of Babylonia, where Babylon was, and way out that way in the Euphrates River area. So it's a good long hike, to say the least. And anyway, so they, uh, they, they come looking for the babe. And so it just begins to tell us that there's been some time has passed. And apparently Mary, or, yeah, Mary and Joseph have been in Bethlehem for a while, that they stayed around for a while, uh, up to probably a couple years, as we'll see that number come out a little bit later in the text. So they've basically resided in Bethlehem now for perhaps close to two years. And Jesus has been born. Now Jesus may be a toddler already, toddling around, you know, saying dad, dad, and Guga and all that stuff, perhaps. I don't know. Abba, <laughs> it's most likely. <clears throat> but the wise men, they come. Now, here's what I want you to think about as we look at this now. Is things are escalating. 
Things are escalating. That's our point here. Escalating complications were used in God's plan. Things are escalated. If I'm Joseph and I had to, okay, I'm going to marry this woman. She's pregnant, but it's of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to do this, and I understand it's of God, and I do this. It might be tempting to think, I've done my part. I, now we're going, to live, we're going to live the way I planned out. We're going to go back to Nazareth. We're going to get back to the workshop. We're going to, we're going to do that. That's what I want to do next. And what you're going to see through Matthew 2 is, no, not yet. There's, there's more. It's going to get, the temperature is going to go up a little bit. It's going to get a little harder. It may have been hard to marry in a small town, marry a woman who was already pregnant. And we don't know what everybody was saying about that. There's people that speculate that it was probably well-known. And there's been thoughts that maybe Jesus was looked at as an illegitimate son and, and all that. And, and maybe that, that stayed with him. There's all kinds of thoughts. But it's not real clear in Scripture about any of that. But these wise men come. And when the wise men come, then Herod gets interested. And if anybody, if if there's anybody you don't want in your business, it's Herod. (laughs) This guy was a despot. This guy had his own family members killed to secure his power in his his throne there in Israel. He wasn't even a real Jew. He was basically an Edomite, an Edomian. And he had become king of Israel through political uh, maneuvering. And he was, he was, well, he really paid a lot of homage to Caesar and was big with the Romans. And anyway, he did a lot of things, a lot of building. Um, but he was evil. He was a tyrant. And as we read in the text, these magi, they come to Jerusalem and they're looking for the one born king of the Jews. And now you got these group of guys from the east. Now wise men, or mag- they're magi as they're called. They're well-educated men. They're, they're, they're students of the stars or astrologers and things like that. Actually, the prophet Daniel had once been in their ranks when he served Nebuchadnezzar and the other kings out there. And he was the chief wise man because he was the, you know, the biblical and godly wise man that actually had real wisdom from God and not looking at the stars and doing all this kind of stuff like they were. And so it's thought that actually they may have known about the star because of Daniel's influence through the centuries. They probably knew of the verse of Numbers 24, 17. It's a, it's a kind of a prophecy goes back to some things. Um, that were told to the people of Israel, but Numbers 24, 17. It says, I see him, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab, and destroy all the sons of Tumult. So there was this reference in Numbers that talks about a star out of Jacob that's connected with the scepter or the kingship of Israel. And this is as close as it gets in the Bible to what the wise men must have known about. They're looking for a star that indicates the one to be ruler. This was actually a prophecy from from the prophet Balaam, by the way, who was not necessarily a good prophet. Anyway... But they knew this and probably knew it through Daniel. So they come. And it's interesting, too, because we can make the point that in a time and place where all of Israel should have been living in an anticipation of what God would do, because they should have known that it was getting nigh time for the Messiah. They had prophecies. They even had a timeline from Daniel. They ought to have known that it was at least getting close. But it seems like all this stuff happens, and and, and it's always met with unbelief and like, I don't know about that. I don't think so. 
And I think that just shows a condition of the, of the human heart again that we just tend to unbelief. And, and God, he does things in our life. We tend to forget. We tend to move on. We tend to then go to the next crisis. And then we struggle to trust again a lot of times. It's just kind of common to man. But here these wise men come. So you've got these guys from the east, probably wealthy, probably well-known in their lands, and now they're coming. And if you're in Joseph's shoes, they're looking for your kid. And now Herod is interested in your kid, your adopted son, Jesus. And I don't know, again, what Joseph must have all been thinking when the wise men come. Let's go to the passage again and read a few more verses to get some more context here. Picking up with verse 7. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then, being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. We, we get from that passage, you know, we get, a, we, we get maybe a hint of, of Herod's intent, intent. He says, I want to worship him too. Yeah, you go and find him. I'm pretty sure he's in Bethlehem. You go and you tell me when you find him. And then I'll pay him a little visit. <laughs> That's what Herod's thinking, right? And so the wise men show up where Joseph and Mary are living in this house in Bethlehem now. Seems the best way I understand the passage. Matthew seems to indicate we're in Bethlehem at this point still. And they live in this house. And so they come. And, and again, we'll see in a minute, it's probably been close to two years since Jesus was born. So, so they come and they see Mary and the child and they give him the, 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 the gifts, the gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And uh, that, by the way, is why many people have the traditional viewpoint that there were only three magi or wise men that you usually see in your nativity sets. And, uh, you know, we're not told the number, but, but in all probability, it was probably more than three. It was probably a caravan of people because it just safer in numbers and travel in the world at that time, especially when you're traveling with gold and frankincense and myrrh. You probably want an entourage, not just you and your two buddies to fend off the raiders. You know, you want a pretty sizable group. And also thing we notice is that the Magi it was, seems to have been able to get the attention of Herod in all of Jerusalem. And so it, more, it seems more likely that a caravan came in looking for the one born king of the Jews. And it said earlier, Herod was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. When Herod ain't happy, ain't nobody happy, apparently, in Jerusalem at that time, right? But the wise men, they show up. And again, think of it from Joseph's perspective. These guys, foreigners, Gentiles... They come, they're looking for you, you're, you're trying to live your life in Bethlehem now, and all these guys show up, and they want to see your kid. And, uh, and you wonder what conversation they may have happened. And the wise men very well may have relayed to Joseph what Herod, that Herod was looking for you too. Yeah, Herod wants to come down and worship you. you know, they, I wonder if that was a conversation they had. And if you're in Joseph's shoes, you may be wondering, what did I sign up for? 
I, I said I would marry her, and we had to go to Bethlehem like right after that, which wasn't in my plans. And now there's people in high places looking for us, and I, and, and I don't know that they, they didn't like Herod. I mean, Herod's reputation preceded him. So there's probably, I wonder if he wasn't in a state of new anxieties of like, oh my goodness, now what do we do? These people are all looking for us. And it seems what God was doing, though, as we read on, he was preparing them for the next steps of what he had in mind. And they bring these gifts. You know, it's always easier to entertain people when they bring gold, frankincense, and myrrh. No, I'm just kidding. If you're looking for a Christmas wish list, no, I'm just teasing. Um, By the way, you know what the wise men said after they presented the gold and frankincense, right? They said, wait, there's myrrh. So anyway, I'll leave you with that. Um, (laughs) let's read on in the passage and see what happens next we saw that the wise men they actually are they have a dream they're divinely warned in a dream not to go back to jerusalem so they they go a different way back home to the east they avoid herod and we pick up with verse 13 now when they had departed behold an angel of the lord appeared to joseph in a dream saying arise take the young child and his mother Flee to Egypt and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I have called my son. Your final point on the outline is fleeing and relocating fulfilled God's prophecies. Again, the point we see here is that God knew all along exactly what was going to happen. He was in the details. He was in, I think, the wise men bringing these gifts because these gifts are going to go to good use now because now you're going to have to leave your homeland and go live in Egypt, foreign country, probably another, I don't know, 80, 90, 100-mile Uh, journey anyway, and you're going to have to go live in Egypt for a while until Herod is is out of the picture. And again, Joseph may be thinking, what did I get myself into? Because now we're going to go to a different country, we're going to go live here. But the comfort that comes in is, as Matthew points out to us in verse 15, he reaches back and he quotes another Old Testament prophecy, and he goes back and he grabs, it, it seems, Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. In Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, I think we have it up here on the screen. I thought I did. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now that reference is actually looking back at the Exodus. You know, but what God shows us in Matthew is, but actually, it also talked about Jesus Christ. Just like Israel being led out of Egypt, so too would Jesus Christ, the Savior of Israel, come out of Egypt. And with these kind of verses, it just seems like God's having fun with us a little bit. <laughs> like, look what I can do. <laughs> so why do you doubt? Like, I, this was pinned centuries before Joseph has to have this dream to go to Egypt. And it just shows God's there the whole time. God has a plan. It's working out just like he designed. And that is such a lesson of faith for us to, again, always recognize the things that are happening to me. God is allowing in my life. He is there. 
His plans are playing out just like he designed. We won't read the rest of the chapter for sake of time, but what you find as you go on is that they go to Egypt, and Herod dies while they're in Egypt. So it could have been another couple of years. We don't know. It's hard to put the timeline together precisely, but they may have been in Egypt for a couple of years. And then Joseph has now a third dream, and the angel says, you can go back to Israel. And by the way, that's all the angel said. You go back to Israel. So they start out for Israel. And they get to Israel, they get back to the homeland, and he's thinking probably we go back to Bethlehem because that's where we kind of had left off. And he seems to be wanting, you know, kind of thinking, we're, I guess we're going to go back to Jerusalem. And then he has a fourth dream where he's told, no, instead go to Galilee. And even that, I think, why didn't God tell him to go to Galilee when he was in Egypt? So he didn't have to bother with figuring out where he's supposed to go when he got there. And it just goes back to say, God gives you what he gives you and then asks you to follow him by faith. We don't walk by knowing, we walk by believing his truth. And that's what Joseph had to learn every step of this way. To come to a place where, like, I don't have to know, I just have to trust in God my Father. And they go back, they, go, they, they, they end up back in Nazareth where it all began with Jesus And he grows up there, and I think you remember most of the rest of the story. As we come to close this morning, I'd like to briefly recount to you the story of another man who was known for dreams, another man who spent some time in Egypt, and a matter of fact, another man whose name was Joseph. You go back in Genesis and you read about another Joseph, the son of Jacob, one of 12 sons of Jacob. He was the 11th of the sons, and his older brothers all despised him in jealousy. And if you're familiar with that story, they end up selling him into slavery, their own brother, into slavery. And that, that begins a chain of events where he ends up in Egypt, and, they, and those older brothers go back and tell their dad that he's dead. They make it look like a, uh, an animal massacre. They take his coat and dip it in blood, and they say he's dead. Sorry. Sorry, not sorry. I mean, basically their attitude. And they have to watch their old man grieve, which nearly broke him. Just the hardness of heart that people can have, right? Comes out in Joseph's story, the other Joseph. But, But Joseph, he stayed faithful to God, even though things were happening to him that were no good. His brothers betrayed him. He's Now he's a slave. He ends up in Egypt. He ends up at you know, Potiphar's house, if you remember. He's falsely accused by Potiphar's wife that he tried something and he didn't. And then he ends up in prison for what she did wrong. <laughs> he ends up in prison. But in time, God brought him to the attention of Pharaoh. Something God could not have done had he not been in prison in Egypt, by the way. God was working the whole time. He had Joseph right where he wanted to use him. In a jail cell in Egypt one day. And then he comes to Pharaoh's attention. He rises to the second of Egypt. He brings the country through a great famine. He brings the whole world through a great famine, through the supernaturally endowed wisdom and ability that Joseph possessed. And eventually, the brothers had to come looking for grain in Egypt too. And they came down, and through a process of events, they became known to each other again. And those brothers were scared at first, because they recognize this little brother of theirs that they weren't real nice to. He's in, a lot of, he's in a place of a lot of power. He holds 
their lives in his hands at that point. But it's a beautiful story because it's a story of forgiveness and reconciliation. Joseph forgives them for what they did to him. And they actually resume relationships. And then he has them all move down to Egypt to survive the famine. That sounds like a Hallmark movie, <laughs> doesn't it? Like a Christmas Hallmark. But it's better than that because it's, it's God at work in people's hearts. It's real. And you know, one thing that Joseph told his brothers is in Genesis fifty twenty, and it says this. He told them, but as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about, as it is this day, to save many people alive. And it's that same lesson that Joseph of Nazareth had to learn. All the things happening to him was God meaning it for good. And that's what's happening in your life and my life as well. Father, we thank you for the comfort of Scripture, the power of your truth. Lord, may the Christmas story really just resonate in our heart as we see your fingerprints in all aspects of it, how you work in and through people and in and through our lives to bring about your will. Lord, give us assurance and comfort through believing in you, no matter what's happening in our lives today, Lord. May we continue to be faithful, Lord. So, Father, we just praise you and give you thanks this day. In Jesus' name, amen.